You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This is an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by No Limits to Their Sway by Edgardo Perez Morales. A history of the privateers of the free state of Cartagena in the Age of Revolutions. Read by me, Matt Albers. Today's episode is also brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We left Captain Kidd and the Adventure Galley at the island of Madeira. They were collecting wine and water, two very important commodities for any ship, especially those on seafaring voyages, but we're going to be covering several thousand miles today and we're taking off at a run, so let's jump in. This is episode 243. Ye honesty of his design. They only stayed at Madeira for a few days. It really wasn't the kind of place that a crew could kick up their heels. Richard Zacks uses a nice turn of phrase. He says that Madeira was an island of black-skinned slaves serving black-coated Portuguese. It was a stuffy kind of place, you know, rich plantation owners everywhere and ultra-religious to boot. The men of the adventure galley were not going to find what they wanted there. They had just finished crossing the Atlantic. And, you know, sailors in the 17th century were rarely tattooed. You would occasionally see it on sailors who served near-indigenous cultures with traditional tattoos as part of their culture, but it wasn't something that had reached the greater maritime world yet. The nautical tattoos, which we often associate with pirates, didn't really come into fashion until the whaling boom of the 1800s. But were they in fashion here in 1696, every man on board the adventure galley would have just earned an anchor tattoo. 
That represented a successful voyage across the Atlantic, a pretty big milestone for most sailors. But of course the men weren't after tattoos. They wanted some pleasurable company. And they wouldn't find it at Madeira. They would, though, on the island of Santiago. Today we just call it Santiago, but at the time it was Saint Iago, in the Cabo Verde Islands. I know there's not a lot of difference there listening to it, but there is a space in Saint Iago in contemporary source documents. While Madeira was off the coast of Portugal, the Cabo Verde Islands was off the coast of Western Africa. By the time Adventure Galley reached Saint Iago, they would have almost earned another tattoo. A swallow, not a sparrow. You'll sometimes see them called sparrows, but that's thanks to Jack Sparrow. No, a swallow represented a sailor having traveled 5,000 nautical miles. And on a voyage from New York to Madeira to the Cabo Verde, they very nearly had. Now, of course, most of the men on board had probably already sailed well over 5,000 miles, but there were those ship's boys and a few first-timers on board, so for them, they were getting close. But again, they didn't care about tattoos, especially not when they arrived at Santiago. They had women to see, and they would see a lot. The women of the Cape Verde were popular, as they never wore much in the way of clothing. Mostly just a loincloth, if that. There were some Catholic missionaries who tried to put them in stockings and petticoats and dresses, but the women always just started taking those off as soon as possible, like immediately they hated it. I imagine some priest proselytizing in front of a group of natives, you know, standing at the pulpit talking about sin and whatnot. But then there's this group of women just standing up and pulling off their bonnets and struggling to get out of all of those restrictive articles of clothing. I can picture the priest stammering and saying, No, 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 put your clothes back on, with a bunch of women hopping around on one foot trying to pull a stocking off. But then, once all of the women are back to a state of nudity and comfortable, I imagine them sitting back down and politely listening to what the priest has to say. And, you know, listening, but not really listening. The women of Cabo Verde, the native women, were famous all over the world, or infamous, depending on your point of view, for their freedom in lovemaking. And it's hard to say how free they really were from a modern perspective, you know, from an early modern, deeply Catholic perspective, anything outside of joyless, marital coitus just for procreation is sinful, so it may or may not have been as wild as they made out, but apparently the women of the Cabo Verde liked presents. You know, you'd bring them a bit of ribbon or some colorful beads, and they'd lead the men away. Not to a secluded spot somewhere, just somewhere comfortable. They were perfectly happy being out in the open in public view. So as you might imagine, the Cabo Verde Islands were a requirement for a number of reasons. The water, first of all, from the Madeira to the Cabo Verde usually used up a ship's stores of water, at least close to. There was also the salt. You'll recall the fancy capturing an English ship at the Cabo Verde that was there for salt. This kind of thing happened a lot, but of course there was the women. And most crews were liable to riot if they weren't allowed to go say hello. Which is exactly what the men of the Adventure Galley did. While they stayed at Madeira for only a couple of days, 
they stayed at the Cabo Verde for a couple of weeks. They finally departed at the beginning of November 1696, and for a while the voyage was uneventful. They didn't see land for weeks. You know, likely they spent some time fishing and a good amount of time drinking, but nothing worth recording happened in that time. By the time they reached the equator, they would have earned a couple more tattoos. Every man on board would have earned a swallow, had that been the custom at the time, but also a tattoo that, depending on the era, can change. These days you'll often see a turtle, or maybe a compass, but when maritime tattoos first became a thing, they would get a tattoo of the god Neptune, holding his trident, that symbolized crossing the equator. There also would have been a celebration on board. For all of those who had never crossed the equator before, they would have been hauled up by a length of rope and dunked into the sea, followed by a salute from one of the ship's big guns and then a copious round of drinks. So it was an uneventful voyage. But elsewhere in the world, ships were dashing here and there carrying news of William Kidd. They recounted his behavior. They shared the news that he appeared to have gone rogue, that he was leading not a pirate hunting expedition, but a pirate ship. While the adventure galley was enjoying a leisurely voyage south, ships from the East India Company or the Navy were all sharing the news that Captain Kidd was not to be trusted. 33 degrees south of the equatorial line, on the 11th of December, the ship's log for the adventure galley recorded, quote, extraordinary foggy weather coming and going, increasing and decreasing very suddenly. Still, though, the men got to work. They unfurled all of the sails and hoped that they would catch some wind, but so close to the equator it was often difficult to catch a breeze. It was in a situation like this that the oars would be helpful, although, of course, the men weren't happy about it. While they were waiting for the wind, though, up in the mainmast, through the fog, a lookout spotted a tower of sails on the horizon. They would not have called the lookout's perch a crow's nest. Not yet, but it was essentially the same thing. A man high up on the mast with a platform and a spyglass keeping watch. The sails that he spotted, though, clearly belonged to a massive ship. And this was a tense moment. You know, a massive ship could be some fat merchantman. But that was less likely than it being either a warship or a heavily armed East Indiaman. Captain Kidd and his mate, Henry Reed, both took out their own spy glasses and rushed to the rail to see what they could see. In the paintings of Captain Kidd done by Howard Pyle in the early 20th century, he's shown in a dark coat with a bright red kerchief and a wide-brimmed, flat-topped hat. He looks like a villain. But that's not how Captain Kidd actually looked on board. He and his officers would all have worn, not navy coats, but a more formal coat, and they would have worn the powdered wigs. Captain Kidd did have a hat for which he was well known. It was a wide-brimmed affair that was not pinned up for firing a musket, so in that respect it's fairly accurate. But here in the early morning there was no sun, just fog, so he wouldn't have been wearing it. But before Captain Kidd or any of the others on board could identify the ship or even spy a flag through their glasses, 
the lookout called out again, Sails. Another ship had appeared, and then again, Sails, and again, and again. Soon enough, there were five ships on the horizon, all of them with a heading right toward the adventure galley. Nobody yet knew where they were from, but they were certainly dangerous. So Captain Kidd ordered some of his men to work the sails, another group to work the oars, and told them to run for it. The crew ran for hours, and they did pretty well. Most of the ships chasing them fell behind. Adventure Galley was clearly losing them, but one ship in that fleet kept up, in fact, appeared to be gaining on the Adventure Galley. She was a sleek ship and just cutting through the water. Adventure Galley was losing the race. So shortly after noon, Captain Kidd ordered his men to furl the sails and put up their oars and waited. As evening approached, that warship caught up with the Adventure Galley, but she did not pull up alongside her. She didn't hail her. That warship and the pirates could now see she was a warship, a fifth-rate ship of the line. She pulled up fairly far from Adventure Galley, but still within range of her guns. And all of the men could now see that she was flying the King's Jack, that precursor to the Union Jack used in the Navy, which might have been a relief. You know, maybe. Life on board a Navy ship, as we should all know quite well, was... Awful. A navy man could expect at the end of the day to receive a piece of hardtack so hard it chipped his scurvy-ridden teeth and, if they were lucky, a pig's ear that had the color of a metallic rainbow. Beyond that, they were almost always paid with IOUs, so if they managed to make it home, their families were destitute, homeless, and dead. The navy was an awful, awful experience for all of the regular enlisted men. And never forget, if they were so impertinent as to complain, those men would be beaten at the mast within an inch of their life with a cat of nine tails. That is, if they weren't just killed. So while there may have been a moment of relief that it wasn't an enemy vessel, I imagine a lot of the men thought something like, Oh good, it's not a French ship, they're not going to kill us, oh crap, it's English. Within a couple of more hours, though, the rest of the fleet had caught up. The second biggest ship was an East Indiaman called, and this is a very creative name, East India Merchant. That was a company ship under a Captain John Clark. There was another company ship, the Scepter, under a Captain Finney. But all of the other ships in this squadron were Navy ships. That particularly fast sixth-rate was called the Tiger, the one that had caught the adventure galley. There were three other ships of the line, either fifth or sixth rate, called the Kingfisher, the Vulture, and the Advice. There were also a number of frigates kind of hanging around, keeping an eye on the perimeter. But then the flagship of this little fleet, HMS Windsor, a fourth-rate ship of the line with a full complement of 70 guns. She was a big craft. The Windsor was under a Commodore Thomas Warren. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. 
because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Commodore Warren was... Well, you know how the Navy had been having trouble in the Nine Years' War. They kept losing battles, like the Battle of Beachy Head, or the action at Barfleur, or La Hogue. All of those were battles that England lost, rather spectacularly, despite usually having more ships than France did. Those three battles, and all of the losses they entailed, very nearly crippled the Royal Navy. They almost won the war for France. If it weren't for that sudden infusion of cash from William Phipps and La Nuestra Senora, well, they wouldn't have had the funds to rebuild the navy. The reason that England kept losing those battles, it wasn't because of the quality of their ships or a lack of ships or the quality of guns or the quality of men or a lack of either. They kept losing because the navy kept promoting men like Commodore Thomas Warren. Thomas Warren was an idiot. A vain, stupid, cruel idiot. Captain Warren was at all of those three battles we just mentioned. And at the first of them, the Battle of Beachy Head, you know, that's the battle, the last battle that Henry Every fought with the Royal Navy. It was the battle that convinced him, you know what, this Navy is done. I can't serve with them anymore. And he left to go work for the private sector because he saw just how inept the men in leadership positions were. And the man that convinced him of that was Commodore Thomas Warren. During the battle, in a ship-of-the-line battle where ships need to stay in the line of battle, Thomas Warren saw an opening. He saw glory and prestige in his future, and he broke the line and went to try to attack the French, therefore leading to the defeat at the Battle of Beachy Head. Thousands of men died because Commodore Warren thought he saw a good opportunity and disobeyed orders. So what did the English Royal Navy do to a man who had just lost so much for them? They promoted him, obviously. Real go-getter, that one. They gave him a bigger, better ship, a third-rate ship of the line. And in that ship he served in those other two actions we talked about. Now, I can't find any record of his conduct at either of those, but I assume he probably screwed everything up and got everyone killed. And thanks to his stellar track record, what did the Royal Navy do? They promoted him. They made him a Commodore. They put him in charge of the West Indies Squadron. They made him the Naval Commander-in-Chief of the West Indies. So for the next few years, Commodore Thomas Warren got constantly outmaneuvered, constantly outsmarted, and basically got his ass handed to him by Lauro de Graff and the French Buccaneers. And eventually, he was recalled to England, not to answer for his abysmal service record, but they had a job for him in England. 
There was an English fleet of 97 merchant ships that needed to make it to India. These ships were led by East India Company vessels, but they needed a proper naval escort to make it there safely. Warren's squadron was one of three Navy squadrons tasked with escorting this fleet. But before we begin, I want to mention two big decisions that Commodore Thomas Warren made before departing. First, he bought 14 head of cattle. That's 14 fully grown cows that were to provide him fresh beef for his personal dinner table. You know, the dinner table that all of the officers enjoyed with him, that is. Second, Commodore Thomas Warren convinced his barber's wife to accompany him to be his washerwoman. Now, the fleet set sail in May, so the Commodore would not yet have heard of Captain Kidd. And almost immediately upon setting sail, things began to go bad. The sailing master of the flagship, who was the sailing master of the entire fleet, his orders were supposed to dictate what they would send up on the flags to tell everyone else to do. Well, that guy died. Now, he had a mate, and they had pilots on board all of the ships who knew their business, but they were all lower-ranking men, the kind of men that Commodore Thomas Warren didn't have to listen to. Because when those men took their readings to gauge where they were, Thomas Warren was pretty sure... None of them knew what they were doing. They were all incompetent, and he knew what was best. He knew that they were all wrong. They were, in fact, far to the east of Madeira Island. No, they weren't. The ship was perfectly on track because the master's mate and the pilot knew what they were doing. But Commodore Thomas Warren decided to overrule all of them and moved the fleet farther to the west. As a result... They lost the rest of the Armada, the other two naval squadrons, and the vast majority of the ships they were supposed to be escorting. And then, they passed right on by Madeira Island. They missed out on all of the water, and the wine, and any fresh fruit they might have bought there. They lost out on some pretty necessary goods on board a ship. For an English ship allied to the Portuguese, this had been a necessary stop for... centuries and he missed it. So the Windsor Squadron, those two East Indiamen, the Windsor, and the rest of the Navy ships, they continued on south. Now it became pretty apparent that they had missed the Madeira because of these miscalculations. And rather than accept his mistake and let the men who had been right the first time do their jobs, Commodore Warren again took a look at the calculations they were making. They were coming up on the Cabo Verde Islands, and, well, he knew that they were just a little too far to the east for all of that. So once again, he ordered the fleet out to the west further into the Atlantic Ocean, which pushed them way, way too far to reach the Cabo Verde. This time, though, his pilot pushed back. He said, look, I'm pretty sure that we're on track to hit the Cabo Verde, and if you push us out too far to the west, we're going to miss out on that, and we really need to stop there, or we're going to run out of, like, food and water and stuff. Commodore Warren had him put in shackles, tied to the mast, and beaten to death. So they sailed west. They missed the Cabo Verde, and they missed their second chance for water. 
The situations on board all of the ships in this fleet had turned into a nightmarish hellscape of human suffering. The men on board all had scurvy by this point. They looked like zombies. They had open, festering sores, oozing pus and blood and just, you know, inside human goop. They had their teeth falling out of their head and they were all so gaunt they began to look like, well, it's a crass metaphor, but holocaust victims. The men who weren't able to work anymore, who were too weak to stand, well, there was a the beatings will continue until morale improves kind of attitude on board, only, of course, they died. On the Commodore's flagship alone, 250 men had died by this point. But those who hadn't, those who still lived, well, it was worse for them. The surgeon on board was in despair. He lamented all that was happening around him. He was recorded saying that God had, quote, damned the men by not dying. The men who were left were reduced to a quart of water a day. That's a quarter of a gallon for our non-American friends. That's just about a liter, which is not enough to survive on. The captain of the Scepter, one of the East India Company ships, said that that was, quote, a small quantity to poor men that eat dry biscuit and salted beef boiled in salt water, and in a hot climate. End quote. Meanwhile, how do you expect that Commodore Warren, paragon of the Royal Navy, was doing? Well, while his men were dying of thirst and eating salted beef and busy looking like zombies, well, he still had twelve cows on board. And those cows had plenty of fresh water to drink every day. Otherwise, they might suffer, and can you imagine the quality of the meat? I mean, gasp. And remember, those cows were reserved for his table alone. He maybe could have slaughtered some of them and given the men a meal of fresh beef, not to mention giving them a brief respite from salted beef and saving them the water that the cows were drinking every day for the human beings. But no, he was a scumbag. But it gets worse. Remember the washerwoman? His barber's wife? Well, she was, surprisingly, still doing his laundry and doing it, get this, in fresh water. One of the men on board, a man named Ned Ward, was recorded saying, quote, he would rather see the whole fleet parched up like touchwood for want of water than his washerwoman would be stinted in any way. End quote. And when Commodore Warren was asked about this decision much later on, he was recorded in saying that seawater makes the clothes stiff, and he had to keep up appearances. I mean, what am I? A barbarian? But it wasn't just washing his clothes that this washerwoman needed fresh water for. She had to bathe the Commodore in fresh water, and more than that, she had to bathe herself in fresh water. I mean, think about it. If you had brought this married woman on board so that she could spread her legs for you night after night after night, would it be appropriate for her to be the least bit dirty? This guy... I genuinely don't understand how he did not wind up with his head chopped off by the crew. Well, actually, it's not that complicated. The men were all weak, teeth falling out zombies, while the officers who would have defended the captain were all hale and healthy. 
Plus, by this point, the regular crewmen all had those fifty-pound collars on. You know the kind we're talking about. The collars that were used to keep slaves in line in Mississippi. They were really heavy, really cumbersome, hard to move around with, and easy to chain up at night so that you wouldn't have a pesky little revolt. Now after all of this is done, after Commodore Warren makes his voyage to India, and they did get there, and eventually returns to England, he is going to be sued by a number of different people. Basically all of the crewmen on board in a class action lawsuit, some of his officers, and that barber of his who sought and got a divorce from his wife, who was pregnant at this point, he sued him as well. But not to worry. Commodore Warren's going to be just fine. Every suit against him was eventually thrown out. That's the ship that on the 11th of December, 1696, as evening was falling, came up right next to the adventure galley. Commodore Warren had a bullhorn with him through which he hailed the adventure galley. He ordered the captain to come aboard his flagship. Now, I love this next bit. When Captain Kidd was ordered to come aboard, he cupped his hands behind his ears, as though he was having trouble hearing the Commodore. And I've seen this characterized as though Kidd was trying to pull one over on the Commodore, but I don't think that's what happened here. They were surrounded by warships. It's not like he's going to get away with it. Instead, I think he was just messing with them. You know, there's that scene, and I should have thought this out before I started recording, but it's in The Last Jedi, where there's the fighter pilot guy. I, I can't remember any of their names. I'm not big on the new trilogy. It's Oscar Isaacs in an X-Wing. At the beginning of the movie, when he's approaching that Star Destroyer and he gets on the comms with the red-headed Imperial guy, the Weasley brother, and he pretends that the connection isn't good. You know, he's like, hello? Hello, can you hear me? Are you there? I think that's what Kid was doing here. I'm pretty sure he did not end this communication with a Yo Mama joke, but I don't have a source on that. Also, he's kind of poking fun at the captain. You know, a a real man would be able to hail a ship without a bullhorn. So when the Commodore pulls one out and he's super loud, Captain Kidd's like, I'm sorry, what was that? I uh, couldn't hear you. The Commodore, though, was not amused. So William Kidd tucked his tail and went on board HMS Windsor. He took a couple of men with him, but Benjamin Franks, that jeweler from New York, he's the important one. Captain Kidd presented the Commodore with all of his relevant papers, and Franks would later say in a court of law, quote, I was on board the Commodore's ship when he told me that Kidd's commission was firm and good, and that he would not molest or hinder his proceedings for putting his hands to his ears. End quote. So Warren invited Captain Kidd and Franks to dinner. They toured the deck before dinner was ready, and Kidd and Franks noted that all of the men were gaunt and skinny, looked like zombies, and had those fifty-pound collars around their necks. When they finally sat down to dinner, it became clear that Commodore Warren had an ulterior motive. But, I mean, can you even imagine sitting down to that dinner? You've just walked around a ship full of men who are dying of thirst and hunger and are clearly nothing but slaves for the Royal Navy, and here you are at a table full of fresh wine. 
beef, fresh bread and fresh water, not to mention a fully stocked liquor cabinet, brandy, rum, whiskey. What do you think is the possibility that you could hear men moaning in pain while you feasted? How do you eat that dinner? How do you avoid cutting the Commodore's throat? And how do you respond when that man tells you he's going to need some of your men? They've lost 250, sadly, so he's going to need somewhere in the realm of 50 to replace them. 50 of your men who are going to have to suffer and die like those poor souls out there. In Frank's version of this story, the Commodore asked for those men. In the version told by Captain John Clark of the East India Merchant, Kidd was ordered to hand those men over. And Captain Clark, who immediately despised Captain Kidd, told the court that Kidd, quote, readily consented. Franks, though, tells us that Captain Kidd bartered. He asked for a mainsail in return, but Warren refused to provide it. Warren, though, did have that fully stocked liquor cabinet, and Kidd partook freely. Apparently, he became something of a boisterous fool, declaring that if Warren wasn't going to give him a sail, he was going to take one from the first ship he found. Later on, John Clark said, quote, These, and many other words in his loose discourse, gave us great cause to suspect ye honesty of his design. Despite his drunken braggadocio, Captain Kidd was invited to dine again the following afternoon, for yet another feast, but also to discuss terms and bring his men over to the Commodore's ship. And with that, Captain Kidd, still super drunk, rode back to the adventure galley. The question is, was he as drunk as he acted? That night was still. A calm had fallen on the ocean, they often do, at the equator. There was no wind to speak of, so there was little worry that Captain Kidd would sail away. But the adventure galley was a galley. When the fleet awoke, adventure galley was not there. The ship's log of HMS advice that morning reads, quote, Last night, Captain Kidd of ye adventure galley sailed from us, so that in ye morning... We lost sight of him. Captain Kidd had slipped away without handing Commodore Warren his requested men. And the adventure galley continued on their way south, on their way to the Cape of Good Hope. Next time, the adventure galley rounds the Cape. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make this possible, and I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. This show is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like History of the Great War, a World War I podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
captain has died Let him live on in legend tonight